Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you have joined us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool awaits. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. All of it brought to you by perhaps the most appropriate sponsor we've ever had, Jim, Figs. These are the folks that make fantastic gear, uh, the apparel that they really need to do their jobs as comfortably and as well as possible for folks in the medical community. It's Figs. And right now, listeners to the Three Martini Lunch can get 15% off for a limited time. Go to wearfigs.com and enter the code martini15, that's martini15, at checkout. And we will have much more on them here in just a moment. So Jim, let's talk about our good martini. And that's that a handful of states are ready to re-engage with the economy, some more aggressively than others. There's obviously been a lot of talk about what's happening in Georgia, and we'll get to that perhaps a little bit later. But where we want to focus today is Texas, where Dr. Burks and a lot of other people are saying this Texas approach really is uh, a very balanced approach that uh, is, is one that uh, ought to work pretty well. And so what's happening here is that uh, Texas is entering phase one, uh, all retail stores, movie theaters, restaurants, and malls are now allowed to open. No business is required to reopen right now, but if a business owner chooses to do so, it is allowable. However, in phase one, restaurants and movie theaters uh, can only reopen to 25% capacity, I guess, for distancing purposes. In retail stores, they can restrict customers by number you know, at any given time. Museums can reopen, but none of the hands-on exhibits will be available right now. Golf courses and tennis courts are allowed to open. Uh, those that can't open just yet are bars, barbershops, salons, spas, and gyms. So Jim, the goal here is to re-engage without doing it so aggressively, you have a, a second wave here. And so uh, this appears to be the balance that a lot of people think is, is striking it exactly right. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of pleased to see uh, this because, look, maybe maybe it was inevitable that whichever state went first or was perceived as going first was going to get the the lion's share of the criticism. And that certainly can be argued as to what happened with Georgia. But, you know, the the big difference between Georgia and Texas, and then over in the corner, I have a corner post that kind of... lays out the point out that this the rules in Georgia are not that different from the rules in Colorado. Um, the big things in, in Georgia that jump out are gyms, fitness centers, tattoo parlors, and bowling alleys, right? Things where you're probably going to be touching things that other people are touching. Um, Greg, I don't know about you. I've never really enjoyed the idea of taking somebody else's shoes for bowling, <laughs> but uh, even, even in normal times, never mind all that kind of stuff. But you know, by and large, you know, Colorado has very similar rules. Uh, real estate opened, uh, retail stores are going to open on May 1st. You got to use the proper social distancing guidelines. Um, something kind of interesting is that you know, Colorado is allowing dog grooming and personal training, although they still want limitations such as contactless drop off and payment. Um, offices can open with 50% of the workforce, but again, they're encouraging telecommuting, they're encouraging uh, staggered shifts, social distancing, basically try to keep your, uh, your workers apart, physical barriers, if that's an option. You know, and also they said for larger companies, temperature checks should, for employees uh, make sense. Now, Greg, I don't know about you, I've heard a ton about Georgia and about how crazy they are and how reckless they are and how mayors don't like it and Tybee Island doesn't like it. The mayor of Atlanta doesn't like it. It's, oh my goodness. This is, you know, I've heard almost nothing about Colorado. 
And they don't seem all that different other than the tattoo parlors and gyms and bowling alleys I mentioned above. And that seems like a small difference to explain this unbelievable difference. And then finally it dawned on me, like there's something heavy landed on my head and I had a eureka moment, uh, Greg. Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, turns out he's a Democrat, Greg. So it Ah. means that everything he does does is okay because he's a Democrat. Look, I think it's clear there are a lot of people in the media world who want this narrative of, ah, we have these good, wise, blue state governors who are keeping the restrictions in place and they believe in science and these bad pick red state governors don't understand any of this and they're just telling people to go into crowds and cough onto each other and you know they're, they're just like the mayor in jaws you know it doesn't fit that narrative both the uh, decisions of, of colorado and uh the decisions you know again most you know medical experts are looking at what texas is doing and saying okay this is going to work again in most of these states you're going to have a lot of these cases concentrated in the big cities and your smaller communities are going to have fewer there are going to be exceptions but if you're a small community that has no cases or only a handful of them, well, maybe you can do something like this. Again, probably want to wear masks, probably want to wear gloves, probably want to social distance. Um, as I wrote in today's Morning Jolt, a whole bunch more states are now opening up for the elective medical procedures that are not all that elective. Um, you know, we are taking these first tentative steps into this, and most places appear to be doing this cautiously. And if we think it's a mistake, if we think it's going to see a, a sudden surge in cases, we can we can backtrack. We can go back to this. But you know, dear fellow Americans, we're in, we're in week seven of this, okay? I think, I think we've held our breath as long as we can. So I think it's, uh, it's good to see this. It's good to see that people aren't freaking out uh, about the rules in Texas. And maybe uh, the grownups are starting to, to be able to have this complicated, balanced, nuanced argument about what steps are the right ones and recognizing that we have no perfect options and we have to choose the one that seems least harmful and learn how to manage an acceptable level of risk. A couple of follow-ups here, Jim. Uh, I saw some folks on Twitter, apparently from Texas, who are a little bit miffed that, and, and you kind of referred to it there in passing, that most uh, parts of the state outside of the big metropolitan areas don't have a lot of cases, don't have any deaths or very few. And so they want it to be more of a local decision on, on when to reopen. In other words, that rural areas shouldn't be dependent on things going well in Houston or Dallas necessarily, especially as long as uh, folks are, are discouraged from traveling. And it reminds me of Virginia Governor Ralph Northam last week uh, saying that he didn't think we were going to do any sort of staggered approach to reopening in Virginia. It was all going to happen at the same time when everyone in the state was ready to do so, which has me banging my head against the desk. And, you know, we're here in Northern Virginia, where it's one of the worst areas of the state. Uh, One of the counties near Richmond is pretty bad as well. But you got the whole Western and Southern part where this has been uh, pretty minor. So the idea that everybody's got to hold off until everybody's ready to go you know, we like the federalist approach from federal and state. How about a, uh, I don't know if federalist is the right word, but diminishing the power down to the uh, a kind of a 10th amendment approach, you know, where, mm. the, lo- where the locals and, uh, and the business owners in some of these really not hard hit areas can, can make decisions while Ralph Northam waits for Northern Virginia and other places to, to get better. Yeah. In fact, you look at most of these gubernatorial proclamations and executive orders and such, they, a lot of them are saying, this explicitly overrules any local jurisdiction that, that rules differently. And I'm not 100% comfortable with that, not just because of my appreciation for local government, although it's worth those of us who are federalists ought to recognize um, when you devolve power back to the localities, sometimes you're going to get really good local officials and sometimes you're going to get really stupid local officials. And you're just, you're just you know, you're, you're going to end up with Mayor Karen 
Um, the one in Texas, I think there's one in Texas who went out and did what, what had her nails done while having a shelter in place for everybody else in the, in her community. You're going to have some bad ones. It's going to, you know, that, that's part of the fruit salad of life as the wise philosopher Ben Carson once put it. But the upside is that you end up with a circumstance, which hopefully it's a little bit easier to correct them. And again, as we noted, because you have such a difference, I think I said, I think three counties in Virginia who have no cases, a whole bunch of counties in Virginia have, you know, very few cases. Fairfax County's got a lot. Arlington's got a lot. Richmond, Virginia Beach starting to creep up there. You know, it, you know, unsurprisingly, in cities where you have more people closely together, you're having more cases. Now, that's that's pretty ominous. The flip side is that generally big cities where you have the biggest hospitals and you probably have the best facilities. So maybe you're going to be okay with that. But the other thing which I was an important point to underline in the policies unveiled by Texas Governor Abbott, the idea that no no institution has to open up, that the no, no business has to open up if they feel like it's not safe. I would like to see America's employers recognize that if you have an employee that for whatever reason doesn't feel comfortable going into work, don't make them come in. We don't want that to happen. Maybe the person immunocompromised, maybe the person isn't feeling well, it could be an ordinary cold, right? You know, but for whatever reason, you do not want people who do not feel comfortable coming into your workplace at a time like this. You know, there's some people who are probably going to be enthusiastic and chomping at the bit to get right to uh, right back to work. And there are some people who are going to be a little more uh, uh, uncomfortable and we'll see how things uh, shake out from that. But uh, I think having a little bit of flexibility and making, you know, basing this based on what we're seeing on the ground in these locations just seems like the most natural policy. And I'm frustrated this has turned into such a uh, typical partisan football. Yeah, I think folks in Virginia are breathing a little bit easier. Late last week, I don't think this went national, but uh, the health commissioner said that phase one in Virginia, which hasn't started yet, in fact, the 14 days uh, countdown hasn't started yet, we're not in that condition yet, uh, was going to last for two years. So all the, the masks and the certain businesses would have to stay closed for two years. Then they walked that back saying, oh, we didn't mean phase one, actually. We meant uh, that we're going to be dealing with the virus in some capacity for two years, which isn't exactly less depressing, but uh, uh, it's a little more encouraging anyway. Uh, last point on uh, on the Georgia-Colorado divide. Jim, uh, obviously one is a Republican and, and one is a Democrat, so the Democrat's going to get an easier treatment from the national press. But Brian Kemp is not just any Republican governor. He's the governor who's Stole the job away from Stacey Abrams. So on one side of the yes. front page, you're seeing a darling profiles about how Stacey Abrams is aggressively campaigning to be Joe Biden's running mate. And then, uh, you know, Brian Kemp, evil Brian Kemp, is, uh, is over here trying to get the economy back going again. So now that Trump and Kemp are at loggerheads about how to reopen, I'm not sure who the media knows who to cheer for here. Maybe they just yes, cheer I, for I'd just like to remind you, Mr. Greg Columbus, that that is future Vice President Stacey Abrams <laughs> is her full title and and current rightly elected governor, the true <laughs> the true governor of of Georgia. Uh, I'm surprised she isn't putting out pretend edicts. Um, she's constantly commenting. The shadow on her. governor. Of, <laughs> the shadow uh, go- yes, it's like when Jesse Jackson was the shadow uh, DC senator. That's part of their whole uh, representation campaign. But anyway, let's let's talk about our great sponsor today, and that is Figs. Obviously, given everything that our frontline medical professionals are are doing right now, uh, thinking about them and finding a way to do something not only kind but practically helpful is a great way to approach our appreciation for them. I mean, you've seen these stories out there. It's typical. It's absolutely typical for nurses to go on 12-hour shifts, and doctors obviously get calls at all hours of the night if there's a sick patient or they have to go into surgery. And now you see these medical professionals going above and beyond. A lot of them are either figuring out a way to sleep in the garage or somewhere other than home for weeks and months on end here so they don't uh, run the risk of infecting their family. 
They are acting in a truly selfless way. And now is the chance for us to do something about that. And Figs is where you can help. Figs is an incredible company whose mission has been to improve the lives of medical professionals since 2013. They create ridiculously soft, modern scrubs. So these amazing humans that uh, help us out, doctors, nurses, other professionals can look their best, feel their best, and perform at their best. And Figs, for the past seven years plus now, has always had their backs, and now we can do the same. So right now, have your favorite healthcare professionals' backs and fronts by gifting them a set of Figs. Right now, you can send a set of fresh scrubs directly, directly to those fighting coronavirus on the front lines. And right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners can even get 15% off for a limited time. Just go to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code MARTINI15 at checkout. Figs is showing up for the healthcare community during the COVID-19 crisis. They have donated 30,000 sets of scrubs to hospitals across the country that need them most. They've also produced millions of N95 masks and PPE, raised $100,000 for the Frontline Responders Fund to help them ship even more PPE, and teamed up with like-minded brands to send care packages with snacks, coffee, personal hygiene products, and more. FIGS will continue to do whatever it takes to support healthcare workers at this challenging time. You want to support good companies, and you want to support companies that are willing to really reach out and help those in need at this exact time. So when Jim talks about all the things that they've provided to frontline responders, uh, a great way to continue that help is to uh, donate a set of scrubs and other materials to your favorite medical professionals and uh, reward FIGS also for its selflessness during this time. Uh, as I've mentioned many times uh, in the past, I had a chance to try out a couple of things from Figs. I'm not a doctor or a medical professional, so I didn't need the scrubs, but uh, the testimonials online are fantastic. Uh, but I did get the active wear jacket. I still have it. I love it. It's, uh, it's lightweight, but uh, keeps you warm anytime the temperature is you know, anywhere from the 40s to the, to the low 60s. And uh, it's got tons of pockets, which is great for any doctor or nurse because they're constantly carrying around pens and stethoscopes and thermometers and those things that uh, they look in your eyes with. Autoscope, is that what that's called? Something like that. Anyway, they carry a lot of stuff to make sure that you're feeling okay. And uh, also got a pair of socks that were really comfortable. So uh, Figs is the way to go for yourself and certainly right now to give something back to those who have done so much to keep us healthy. So now more than ever, it's important to recognize these selfless, awesome humans and listeners of the Three Martini Lunch, as I mentioned, can get 15% off for a limited time. Go to wearfigs.com, W-E-A-R-F-I-G-S.com, and enter the code MARTINI15. That's MARTINI15 at checkout. All right, Jim, let's move to our bad martini now, and our esteemed media is once again the focus of our attention here. This time from Politico. This was posted at 11.53 last night, so a very convenient time for that. This is a massive correction. Politico published an article Friday morning on President Donald Trump's business dealings with China with the headline, Trump owes tens of millions to the Bank of China and the loan is due soon. Since then, new reporting and information have led us to update and correct the article after publication. The article cited a nearly $1 billion refinancing deal from several banks, including the Bank of China struck in 2012 with a New York City real estate venture in which the Trump organization has a substantial minority interest. We reported that President Trump, through the Trump Organization, owes the Chinese state-owned bank tens of millions of dollars on a loan that comes due in 2022. The assertion 
which was referenced in the headline as well as the story, was based on public documents related to the deal as well as property records. We sought comment from the Vornado Realty Trust, the primary investor, which did not respond to our request before publication. The White House and the Trump Organization declined to comment on the record after being told what we intended to report. On Friday evening, Politico received a statement from a representative for Bank of China USA, which had not been contacted beforehand that the bank had sold off or securitized its debt shortly after the 2012 deal. A spokeswoman said the bank has no current financial interest in any Trump Organization properties. We updated the body of the article to take account of the bank's statement. The original headline was changed to Trump owed tens of millions of dollars to the Bank of China. And so, Jim, there were a lot of ugly insinuations and accusations on social media, which would happen probably regardless of what Politico reported, but that uh, Trump was somehow going easy on China initially in this uh, crisis and downplaying the threat to somehow placate the uh, Chinese who was holding his debt. And basically this is, uh, you know, we never really bothered to talk to the bank and, oh, they finally got in touch with us unilaterally. And it turns out that the thrust of our story was dead wrong. Sorry. Anyway, what's next? Yeah. So a couple things jump out about this, uh, Greg. The first thing is, is that the, the argument that Trump had taken it easy on China. Now, here's the thing. There are times Trump will, you know, say, I just got off the phone with President Xi. We, you know, he's a terrific guy, fabulous, you know, and he goes on about, you know, there are times in this uh, crisis where he has saluted China's efforts. He even, you know, thanked them for their transparency, which was particularly cringe-inducing. Um, but on the other hand, this is also the same president who in every discussion of, of trade brings up how China is eating our lunch and how they're taking us to the cleaners and how all of our negotiations have been idiots and they're ripping us off and all that kind of stuff. So if Trump had been bought off by China, he probably would not be making all of the statements he has been making since he came down the escalator in 2015. Um, that is not the, uh, the, you know, the most sensible explanation that he was secretly bought off or he's afraid because he owes them money or something like that. No, I think the most easy recommendation for explaining almost any Trump decision is who did he talk to most recently? <laughs> and, you know, when he gets off the phone with Xi, he's often in a very good mood about Xi, you know, and that's, uh, that's what drives it. And then, you know, that eventually the, the effect of that phone call wears off and he goes back to complaining about China again. That's, you know, that this, this Trump's decision-making is that much of a mystery. Now, as for Politico's reporting, I can understand the appreciation for documents uh, and preferring documents to statements from people because people, you know, will try attempt to spin you, right? Almost all the reporting I've done since this coronavirus crisis started has been driven by documents and things that are posted online in part because I'm not allowed to leave my house and go talk to people. Uh, <laughs> but also as a matter of once the Wuhan health authority says this is not contagious from person to person, they could try to go back and try to, you know, uh, mess with the website, the, the websites and alter what they said at the time, but they haven't. And even then we have the web archive and other ways, of, you know, screenshots and other ways of saying, no, this is what they said, right? I did not reach out to the Wuhan Central Health Authority in part because I don't speak Chinese. Nonetheless, the fact that they said this is pretty straightforward and Google Translate can give you at least the basic gist of everything you're looking for. So I understand Politico putting more value in what documents say than what you know, the release statements when you call someone up and ask for a comment mean. That having been said, you have to understand the documents you're looking at, and clearly they did not. What's more, uh, you do have to reach out to other people and probably all the figures who are involved with this 
I think you have to give them a reasonable amount of time to respond to your request for comment. Anytime I see the sentence, so-and-so did not immediately respond to, you know, to a request for comment, I sit there and think, how much time did you have between placing the call, not getting an answer, and hitting publish on your report? Was it a matter of minutes, a matter of hours? Wouldn't we all kind of agree that probably if somebody says, hey, I've got a story on you, it's really, you know, paints you in a bad light. Wouldn't we agree that you probably, that the person deserves 24 hours to kind of, you know, get their response into you? I don't know, I think it seemed like a, a, a good rule to me. As far as we know, no one else was working on this story. As far as we know, there was no, you know, oh, we got to do this or else uh, New York Times is going to beat us for the story, you know. <laughs> um, getting the story right is better and more important than getting the story first. If you get the story first, but you're wrong, well, hopefully you'd be like Ben Smith, uh, who's you know formerly of Politico, then of BuzzFeed, then of New York Times, who reported that John Edwards was quitting race because his wife had cancer. Except, oh, wait, wait he didn't. And that never really caught up with him. Maybe we're not very good at holding people accountable for this anymore, uh, Greg. Maybe it's a Politico thing. I don't know. But for whatever, I also remember them reporting way back when in 2007, 2008, just as they were getting started, Alberto Gonzalez will leave the White House. Well, yes, someday. <laughs> seven months passed between that headline and the actual departure of the attorney general. Um, anyway, that's my, my uh, expression of frustration. Also, have we ever seen a desire to really nail somebody on a Democrat? And then it turned out the story was totally wrong coming from some mainstream institution. Color me very, very skeptical. Off yeah. the top of my head, Greg, I can't think of any examples of that. No, not, not at all, unless it was uh, in the heat of a primary campaign. You might have certain entities who prefer one yes, Democratic yeah, candidate yeah. to another. Uh, I remember Keith Olbermann going hardcore anti-Hillary uh, in, uh, in the 2008 primary, for example. But the other thing you never see is uh, Politico or anybody else saying, we didn't have all the facts in line, and it turns out that this story that was glowing about this Republican wasn't exactly accurate. They're always correcting it <laughs> to be less bad for the Republican. Or, you know, we have assigned that reporter to do filing duty for the next couple of months. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not saying, not saying, you know, like they're like, ah, fire that person. No, no, I don't like seeing people getting fired. Everybody can make mistakes. But a little bit of, little bit of time in the corner, where the dunce, the dunce camp, you know, sitting there and thinking about what you did, you know, a little bit of... A little bit of that probably would do some people some good in this profession, but uh, eh, it's never going to happen. So why do we even talk about it, Greg? All right, Jim, let's turn to our crazy martini now. We actually have some 2020 news to talk about here. And uh, I could have sworn, I know we've been talking a lot about coronavirus, but I could have sworn that sometime here in the last month or so that Bernie Sanders dropped out of the presidential race. He endorsed Joe Biden and uh, promised to work with him. They even did a a Zoom call together, and uh, it was awkward, of course, because it involved Joe Biden. But uh, nonetheless, it looked like they were all buddy-buddy and ready to go. But uh, not quite when it comes to the decision of New York, because New York doesn't have any crisis going on right now, uh, their decision to cancel the June presidential primary. This is from the Free Beacon. Despite endorsing presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders criticized New York's decision to cancel its June presidential primary. The twice-failed presidential contender called the decision, quote, a blow to American democracy. The cancellation, which state officials say is necessary to stem the spread of the coronavirus, would also be a blow to Sanders' influence on the future of the Democratic Party. And that's where this is really going. Quote, what the Board of Elections is ignoring is that the primary process not only leads to a nominee, but also the selection of delegates, which helps determine the platform and rules of the Democratic Party, Sanders senior advisor Jeff Weaver said in a statement Monday. Prior to the decision, Sanders had remained on the state's ballot with the goal of packing the Democratic National Convention with as many allies as possible. 
convention delegates not only shape the party platform heading into November, but also choose the nominee in the event of a brokered convention. The Sanders campaign called for New York to lose all of its 274 pledged delegates if it moves forward. So, Jim, Bernie Sanders knows he's not going to be the nominee, but he does want to uh, have a lot of influence on the platform. So what do you make here? Is this a guy who's uh, still pretty tone deaf to the crisis and is still laser locked on what his political goals are here? Or is this a, a fair argument that, you know, democracy doesn't stop, elections don't stop, even in a primary process that's largely already been decided? Greg, have you ever encountered someone and they, they get some sort of uh, great setback in life or uh, some bad news or, or some sort of heated exchange that you think they'd be really angry about, but they, they seem to keep their cool. They seem to not get that upset about it. In fact, the more you ask about it, the more they insist that they're fine and nothing's wrong and they're over it and stop asking about it. They don't want to talk about it. And then you ask them to pass the salt and they say, I will pass the salt when I'm good and ready. They explode. There's a sudden huge reaction to something that really shouldn't seem like that big a deal. The fact that New York is saying, hey, no primary. Like, I imagine if you were a volunteer for Bernie Sanders for president in New York State, and then they end up not even having the primary. Okay, that, that'd be, a, that'd be a, a bitter pill to swallow. That'd be really frustrating. But we all know that, you know, again, as far as we, at least as far as we all thought, this primary was over and Bernie Sanders said that... Uh, he was suspending his campaign. The reaction of Weaver and quite a few Bernie Sanders supporters of the last, uh, over the last 24 hours to this news about New York State was not the reaction of people who have accepted, who have been through those five stages of Kubler-Ross and who are uh, okay with the fact that Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. It's almost like they don't think Joe Biden is certain to be the nominee. What would give them that idea? Well, maybe the fact that the nominee is 77 years old Maybe the fact that there's an ongoing viral pandemic that is uh, completely turning American life upside down. And oh, by the way, uh, when Biden has been appearing and making television appearances over the last uh, six, seven weeks, he hasn't looked all that great. Uh, we thought that the time off would kind of refresh him and reinvigorate him and it'd be a easier schedule. And we're still getting the same meandering verbal wanderings from Joe Biden that we've always gotten. And so as the country is sending into a, look, this is a crisis not really unlike anything else we've ever happened. Anything else you want to look at in our history? 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, Pearl Harbor. You know, these, these were like regional disasters. Now, they, you know, the, the Pearl Harbor triggered a national mobilization. Uh, the Great Recession undoubtedly was a, you know, great mobile, you know, affected almost every community, although some more than others. But we are dealing with something that affects every last little, you know, uh, you know, community is being touched by this in one form or another, either economically or medically uh, or, or, or socially or things like that. Joe Biden may have been a perfectly OK placeholder candidate. He may have been a perfect you know, return to normalcy. But events themselves have made clear normalcy is not returning, at least not for until we find a vaccine or until we find a treatment uh, or I guess until herd immunity kicks in. So all of a sudden, this question that seemed really resolved in the first week of March, after Joe Biden swept the Super Tuesday states and he did uh, the next round of states on not-so-Super Tuesday, he looked like he'd locked this thing. Well, the world has changed a great deal in the past seven weeks. So now all of a sudden, the, the Bernie Sanders folks are saying, wait a minute, Democratic Party, are you sure you want to go ahead with this? Now, I'm not so sure they'd, want to go, they'd rather go with Bernie Sanders. Let's go with the one guy who's even older and who, oh, by the way, has this crazy kooky socialist agenda. But that having been said, I think if you said to every last Democrat, are you totally comfortable with how this thing shook out? Is this exactly the, the person you want in charge as a, uh, 
uh, as we head into really uncharted waters as a country. It's completely understandable Democrats might have second thoughts about that. So I think the Sanders folks think this thing isn't really as etched in stone as it, as it appears to be. Now, whether this means they're actually going to see a giant fight, again, there may not be a convention in Milwaukee. I'm not even sure how this process is going to go ahead from this from this point on. But uh, I think this is an indication the Bernie folks never really made their peace with it. And in fact, there'll be quite some time before they accept the idea of Joe Biden, Democratic presidential nominee for 2020. Jim, that'll be all for today. See you tomorrow. Happy 984th consecutive Wednesday, everyone. (laughs) See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget our friends over at FIGS. Go to wherefigs.com. Enter the code martini15, martini15 at checkout and get 15% off for a limited time. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Get us on those home devices by saying play three martini lunch podcast. And please join us on Wednesday, which really will be Wednesday on the three martini lunch.